I think we're all there. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Father, we come to your words and come in particular to quite a remarkable chapter as we see Jeremiah in all his uh, flawed and weak humanity, as we see you full of uh, kindness and compassion. Teach us what mature uh, spiritual life and growth looks like, we pray. Help us to take from Jeremiah what we should. Help us to uh, not be like Jeremiah when he goes down uh, wrong paths. Help us to know that, that you have revealed yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ to be not just Jeremiah's God, but our God. And we read these words, therefore, that we might know you better and understand what it's like to serve you. And so we pray that you'd speak to us, teach us, encourage us. And ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It's not a huge change from uh, last week, if you can remember that. Do you remember last week, this interplay, this to and fro between Jeremiah and the Lord? It's quite interesting, isn't it, that so much space is given over to it. If it was a, a narrative story, a history, we'd be sped along by the story if we were reading 1 Kings or 1 Samuel. That's not the case in Jeremiah. We're hearing his sermons. We've had a lot of that. But actually, perhaps unexpectedly, we're getting quite a lot of material just listening to Jeremiah on his knees in prayer and uh, listening to the Lord respond. I'm not going to ask for interactivity. Goodness, I've learned we don't do interactivity at Rock. <laughs> Let me ask a question then, just for you to mull over. What, why so much space given over to this to and fro between Jeremiah and the Lord in prayer? There must be a purpose, mustn't there? This isn't a passing thing. This is chapters. Uh, uh, why did the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom and goodness, preserve these interchanges for us? What's the purpose? What what does it have to do with us today? Well, I guess I've had a lot more time to mull that over than you have. And, you know, it'll be obvious as we go through what what I think the answer is. Uh, I'm reminded of a a lovely verse in um, Philippians. Uh, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model... Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Which is just so important, isn't it, in terms of the value of church life. We, it, God has intended, he has made it so that we, we learn from role models. We, we need people around us who know God's word, who have lived according to God's word, who have walked the path of knowing and loving and serving Jesus longer than we have. We need them in our lives so that we might learn from them. Uh, it's interesting that Paul can call himself an example. Of course, as a leader of the church, that's what you would hope and expect. But it's not just those who are kind of officially appointed, is it? Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. There are lots of folks in the church who are mature believers from whom we can learn. It's one of the strengths of rock, isn't it, I think, that we have such a spread of ages. For the younger folks, there are more mature believers to learn from. It, is Jeremiah a role model? And if he is a role model, what is he a role model of? I, I don't think that the answer is altogether straightforward. We want to say a tentative, 
perhaps more than tentative, yes. He is. He, he does, I think, model mature spirituality. I, I might be biased. I, I see a little Jeremiah in my own heart. And I quite like him as a consequence. <laughs> I hope he is a model, because then there's hope for people like me. He, he shows us that experienced godly leaders struggle in their spiritual life. In life and faith and struggle with their relationship with the Lord. I think this is mature Christian spirituality set out for us. Kind of stripped of all its idealism. The veneer's gone. This is kind of soaked in the challenging realism of life and work in a, in a world of sin. Where sin remains actually not just in the world but in the church. And in the leaders of the church too. I guess uh, all of that is leading to this. What will you learn from Jeremiah? I'll ask you again at the end once we've gone through these verses. What will you learn from Jeremiah tonight? Uh, We start with Jeremiah in a pretty bad place. (laughs) Oh, the irony. (laughs) This is Jeremiah's low ebb. Oh, leaders and their weakness. Verse 10, alas, my mother that you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I've neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. Jeremiah 15, verse 10. We're we're back in a place we know. We've been here before. We're with Jeremiah on his knees. His eyes are full of tears. He is a weeping prophet. And I guess, I hope, we've come to admire him in some, some ways. He's courageous, he is resolute, to some degree he is resilient, he keeps going. We know this is a decades-long ministry that is really challenging because so few, if any, will listen and accept what he says as true. So many will respond to the call to repent and believe. There are are ways, I want to argue, that Jeremiah is a model of steadfastness. But look, there is something slightly new here in verse 10. This really is his lowest ebb, I think. Depression seems to reign in his heart. We wouldn't call it a suicidal thoughts, would we? It's more passive than that. He just wishes he hadn't even been born at all. He finds himself, because of his ministry, utterly isolated. The whole land strives and contends. It is both true and perhaps an emotional overstatement. And he cries out to to God that this situation he's in, he's done nothing to warrant uh, such rejection. I've neither lent nor borrowed. Now... Uh, that requires a little word of explanation, doesn't it? Because uh, lending and borrowing are perfectly good and normal. They're not forbidden in the church in any way, are they? Uh, that proverb, neither a, a lender nor a borrower be, that's, that's certainly not a Christian proverb. It's quite unchristian, really, I think. So I, I think he's using shorthand. I have not lent in the sense perhaps that he's not a money lender, the kind of guys he's already condemned in his sermons. He's not demanding an unfair repayment plan and therefore he's not warranting a little pushback from his unhappy clientele. 
And when he says, I've not borrowed, I, I take it in the sense that he's in no one's debt as he goes about this preaching ministry. He's not like a, a government minister who's had a nice, easy mortgage for a second home as long as he asks particular questions in government. No, he's in no one's pocket. That is, he's without financial entanglements that might lead to bias and sin. He hasn't lent or borrowed in that sense. And yet still, end of verse 10, everyone curses him. Well, all of that, that loneliness, that hardship, that trying to do the right thing, and yet finding yourself utterly alone, it, it's brought him to the point of being able to, being able to, of saying out loud before the Lord his God, Alas, my mother, that you gave birth to me. Which is a bit like Adam in the Garden of Eden complaining that God gave him Eve after Eve's sin. It's really not a complaint against the mother or Eve in the Genesis 3 example. It's a complaint ultimately against the Lord God, isn't it? Here then is Jeremiah and all the weakness of his humanity. Is it a minister of the gospel who is tired and lonely and harassed and depressed? And look, if give him a little bit of due there's much going on to justify such strong emotions again there's no historical markers to place this at a particular point in his ministry but in terms of context in the previous chapter we've read about the national drought we've read too about the really popular false prophets prophets they're not in the same situation as jeremiah they're loved and embraced We know too his messages of exile and captivity coming. There's perhaps a little that would give him excuse for feeling quite so utterly low. We'll meet Jeremiah in the new heavens, the new earth, won't we? Do you think he'll be ashamed of verse 10? Do you think he'll feel with that perspective that he slightly overstated the case? I can't answer that question. I can say I'm really glad verse 10 is here. By preserving them in scripture, God has given us permission to be as honest as Jeremiah, uh, 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 to pray this way, if we feel this way. If Jeremiah can do it, I I think we can do that, can't we? His heart isn't pure. His emotions aren't necessarily warranted. His conclusions verge, I don't think they cross the line, but they verge on blasphemy against the creator. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth. But he is honest. It is authentic. There's no veneer here, is there? Listening to the prophet gives us permission to lay out, I think, our emotions, good, bad, high and pure or low and ugly as they might be, in the sense that much better to say them directly to God than to, well, than to whisper them to others in the shadows. Let God deal with us as we are, not pretend to be something we're not. What's amazing is the Lord's response, verse 11, the Lord speaks words of kindness. The Lord is going to challenge Jeremiah. We ought to make a note of that. That will be important. That's not the first response. And I appreciate that as somebody who's Jeremiah inclined from time to time. I think that's instructive. Kindness and rebuke are perhaps both needed with 
folks who are a little bit depressive, but wisdom dictates here that kindness comes first, and then when Jeremiah can cope, rebuke will come later. Verse 11, the Lord's message to this despairing prophet is that, well, Jeremiah has come to the right place for help. He's come to the only place, really, hasn't he, where help can truly be found. It's interesting, the Lord doesn't pretend things aren't as they truly are. It's going to stay difficult, says God. Times of disaster and distress are still coming, verse 11. But in the midst of that struggle, yet this promise, surely I will deliver you. Surely I will make your enemies plead with you, Jeremiah. I think that's really precious, isn't it? In all his perhaps self-pity, the Lord draws close and says, Jeremiah, look, I am the present help and the future hope that you need. I will restore you to a good purpose. I will vindicate you before all the naysayers and persecutors. In his weakness, it looks like Jeremiah's lost sight of the value of what he's doing as he speaks for the Lord in his generation. He's lost sight of the hope for the future, the judgment that will show everyone that he was right all along to preach for the Lord. Hard to say out loud, wouldn't ask you to publicly confess. I wonder if the quietness of your heart, I don't know, can you relate to Jeremiah? Have you known those times? Whether you're sharing a a verse with a friend, teaching a Sunday school class that will not sit down and listen. You lead home group studies that just seem to bomb and all that hard work seems to be for nothing. Perhaps you even step into the pulpit or something like that. There are going to be times of despair as we handle God's word with God's people. Tiredness, loneliness, times when it seems that no one is trying as hard as you. That's almost never the case, but it might feel like that. Those emotions, if you feel them, they're not unheard of. Jeremiah knows what you're going through. The Lord knows. And rather berating than berating you in your weakness, in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't the Lord turn to us in love and kindness? As you serve Christ, you're working for a good purpose. He reminds you as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be vindicated. He is the Lord now and the judge to come. He will expose all the foolishness of this world and all the world will see that what you were doing was good and right all along. You will be vindicated. Jeremiah's good purpose is to preach and warn of coming judgment and so... Now the kind of momentum is going, the Lord recommissions at Jeremiah. He gives them this new sermon to preach, verses 12 to 14. It's a short sermon, isn't it? I don't think there's anything in those verses 12, 13, 14 that we've not heard before. It's not so much new content. I think that the point is that it was confirming that the message that, that Jeremiah have will continue to be about coming judgment against Judah, of coming capture and extra, exile. The, the inclusion here is really more illustrative of Jeremiah's rehabilitation. Look, same message, Jeremiah, and you're the same prophet, but you will feel better. You will know my hand upon you. 
you are going to be able to go back and preach this gospel again. And it's a rehabilitation which seems to be relatively successful. Uh, Verse 15, Jeremiah prays again. We don't know how much time has taken place between his first and second prayer, but he does seem to have moved forward. Just the length of this second prayer, verses 15 to 18, show us that that some progress is being made. The depression is lifting a little from from Jeremiah. The black dog is not quite as close to biting his leg as before. Even the beginning is important, isn't it? Verse 15, Lord, you understand. Well, that's progress, I would say. He's not passive now. He's not aggressively criticising his creator. He doesn't bemoan his creation. No, he starts with, okay, this is who you are. You, you do understand, Lord. More than that, Jeremiah knows the Lord, his Lord, is, is the one who does help. Remember me and care for me, verse 15. I think those words not only show how effective the Lord's kindness has been, they also reveal a kind of strengthening of Jeremiah's heart. He's not perfect, he's far from it. We'll see that towards the end of this prayer. But there is progress. There's a great lyric I've been listening to. This dates me. But going back through Nirvana's back catalogue. And... Um, it's funny because Kurt Cobain took his own life. It, that becomes all dominant. But actually, when you listen to the lyrics, he is a genius songwriter. And, and there's a brilliant line in one of the songs that he sings over and over in that Kurt Cobain, if you know who he is or remember him from the 90s, that kind of Kurt Cobain cry. He says this I miss the comfort in being sad. Again and again and again. It's brilliant. Brilliant. There's a man, I think, in Kurt Cobain who understands the rut depression can become and how much easier it is sometimes to just stay in the rut, how hard it is to escape. I miss the comfort of being sad. There was a comfort of just staying as he was. But verse 15 shows us that the Lord has got jeremiah up and out he's got him over himself in that sense jeremiah has allowed himself to be picked up by the lord the lord has done the picking up it's kind of divine love and human responsibility together isn't it god has met jeremiah in the midst of his sorrows but jeremiah has allowed the lord to encourage him and change his perspective both those things are really important He's not through his struggles yet, though. He still suffers, verse 15, for your sake, Lord. Is that accusatory or just true? It's hard to know. And while he's tried to do the right thing and avoided ungodly company, as the Lord has told him to do, yet still, verse 17, he is pained because he finds himself utterly alone. And that pain... It's not a broken leg. It's not physical, is it? It is a spiritual pain. It's emotional pain. But it is real pain. It hurts him. Verse 18. It is unending. It is grievous and incurable. 
And now Jeremiah's started to slip back a little, hasn't he? Grievous we could accept. I can't imagine what it would be like to be Jeremiah preaching to a people who just booed and didn't want to hear anything he had to say for 40 years. That's tough, grievous. Incurable, that's too far now. And so at the end, we find this accusation against the Lord. When I was a student, as well as listening to Nirvana, everybody wanted to be arty and seemed to be arty, and I did, and Dawn did French, and I, I wanted to impress her. We all watched Jean de Florette. Have you seen Jean de Florette? It's, it's a really brilliant film, and I encourage you to watch it, a French film, uh, uh, which is really moving, and, and it's worth far more than a simply arty student following it, we follow Jean at this uh, uh, hard-working, honest farmer, desperately trying to grow a... Oh, I think I've got a picture of it. Oh, look, there's Nirvana. I forgot that. There's Jean the Florent. Jean is trying to grow this harvest of flowers to sell at market. He, he works tirelessly. He's breaking his back. But a greedy landowner buys the property next to him, blocks the only water source... That, that leads to uh, poor Gerard Depardieu's property and, and, and therefore bankrupts poor Gerard. Depardieu is a broken man. His life has been built on a deceptive brook, on a, on a spring that failed. And, and Jeremiah can say in prayer to the Lord, you are to me, Lord, uh, like a deceptive brook, like a, like a spring that fails. What should we do with that? That's a pretty tough charge to lay at the feet of the Lord God. Are we to learn from Jeremiah's candour in prayer? I think there's perhaps a sense in which we can applaud his honesty. Better, again, say it directly to God if you feel that in your heart. But you see in that moment, at the end of verse 18, a terrible thing has taken place. That is... Jeremiah has turned the world upside down for a moment. He's elevated himself and he's looking down on the Lord. And whilst the Lord has been speaking words of condemnation on Judah, now, can you see, we can read this as Jeremiah looking down on the Lord and speaking words of condemnation against him. Jeremiah is much better in some ways, this newfound being able to talk it through with the Lord, it's good, but that's led him to this really difficult place. Again, though, I think, wouldn't we be telling lies if we didn't say that just occasionally we feel like that of God? We run out of energy, we feel tired, we feel alone, we feel fed up of the life of the church, the work of the church. Where is the encouragement, Lord? Where is this spring of living water that the Lord Jesus promised? Perhaps we couldn't have the courage to put it quiet as Jeremiah does, but maybe in our hearts we think, you've become a deceptive brook, a spring that fails to me, Lord. Well, if you felt that, and I think I have just occasionally, we need to hear... Uh, this final section, the Lord's words of challenge and comfort. 
I'm so thankful as I read this that the Lord doesn't despair of Jeremiah, even if Jeremiah is despaired of the Lord. I need to note that down when the black dog returns, or Dawn needs to, that's how it works in our marriage. She reminds me of all the things I've said from the pulpit. The Lord doesn't despair of Jeremiah, but the Lord does see that for his progress in the faith, Jeremiah must walk a path of repentance as well as faith. That is, it's not now simply words of encouragement that the Lord must speak, but words of challenge. It simply isn't true that the Lord is a deceptive spring. In the darkness of his despair, Jeremiah may have been honest, that's what it felt like, but his honesty has revealed an unbelieving heart. And that's sin. But sin is not the end. Weakness is not the end, is it? There's that wonderful quote from the Puritan Richard Sibbs. I know you've heard it a thousand times. It feels like it's been written for just this prophecy. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Isn't that wonderful? There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Uh, Verse 19 Uh, three statements that are really wonderful to hear and important. Uh, First, by the grace of God, there is a way back for Jeremiah from this blackness. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. Our repentance is needed. We depressive need to hear that as well, I think. But the Lord will meet us in our repentance and restore us that we might go on serving. Uh, Secondly, it must come to an end of worthless words, Jeremiah. You must return to preach the worthy words that I give you, and you will be my spokesman again, verse 19. And then finally in verse 19, uh, you get this wonderful, let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. But verse 19 as a a whole, look, so filled with grace, and kindness and compassion, aren't they? Just wonderful words. There's a slight play on words in the original Hebrew. Uh, We can't see it very clearly, but four times we get the same verb. The verb is uh, translated as repent, first of all, and then restore at the start of verse 19. And at the end of verse 19, you get turn and then turn again turn is actually the most straightforward translation for this verb the the niv just changes the translation to show us the nuance of what's going on but the, the play on words goes something like this verse 19 if you turn in repentance from your sin then i will turn back to you and restore you that's how the first line kind of reads And then you get the two turns at the end of verse 19. Uh, Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them, bookending the verse. Which is really important, and I think about his orientation in ministry. Jeremiah must recover, he must come back to the coalface, he must return with this message that God has given them, to warn them of coming judgment, that they might repent and believe. He must go back to the congregation he's so keen to avoid. He's got to go back and face the naysayers. He's got to go back to even his persecutors. 
He must go back to them, but he mustn't, verse 19, turn to them in the sense, I think, of becoming like them. He mustn't embrace their values. He mustn't preach for them a message that they want to hear, just like the false preachers, the false prophets were doing. Can you see, kind of spiritually and theologically and ethically, they must come to his position, but he mustn't turn to meet them in theirs. And, you know, I can't help but read that and think there's a warning there. For the modern church, as we watch the Church of England publish that document that we've talked about before, Living in Love and Faith, it seems as if they're, they're, they're turning the church towards the world instead of calling the world to come to the church and its unchanging scriptures. The temptation for Jeremiah to avoid suffering to avoid persecution and outrage, is the temptation for the church in every age. Why suffer disdain? Why be persecuted if we could simply update God's message, adapt God's word, and be received in the world with open arms? But that's not the path that Jeremiah must take. It's not the path for the church in our age. Let this people turn to you but you must not turn to them. And then verse 20, Jeremiah can have confidence that he does go on in faithful ministry of God's word. God will provide that emotional and spiritual, perhaps even physical resilience that he needs to continue. The Lord will make him an unbreakable bronze wall. That's the very metaphor that the Lord used himself earlier to describe the Babylonians and their coming on to the people of Judah. Despite his own weakness, the Lord's not going to allow the people to overcome Jeremiah or his ministry. Which begs the question, why? Where will this new resilience come from? Where will he find this strength to keep going? Where, where will this power to stand firm be found in the face of the opposition that he will face? And you know the answer already, don't you? You can see the end of verse 20, you can see verse 21. You know that we've seen that a thousand times in the Bible for folks who are afraid or upset, weak and in need of strength. Verse 20, for I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. Verse 21, I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. That's enough for one week, isn't it? It's more manageable. Can I come back to the question that we started with? What will you learn from Jeremiah? I think it's one of those chapters that's very easy to think, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening. I hope the person sitting next to me will learn this. But I wonder about you personally. What will you learn from Jeremiah and his toing and froing with the Lord in prayer. Perhaps lessons about just brutally honest prayer. Perhaps lessons of just how the Lord deals with us in kindness, in challenge, even in our weakness. I hope as we reflect on these words, perhaps memorise verse 19 and 20, you could do far worse than that we would find an increased honesty in prayer. 
we would find in our hearts a readiness to repent, a, a willingness to be picked up and patted down and sent on again. And as we do, let's pray that we would experience those rivers of living water given by the Spirit as we serve Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, meet us in our weakness, we pray. And teach us that in you we might find strength. We pray this as adults who have experienced some of the horrors of this world. Uh, We pray this as people who know uh, how hard ministry can be at times, in whatever form that ministry might take. We pray this knowing that you know all these things, Lord, and still you can use us, equip us, strengthen us. Help us to treasure those words, for I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord, that we might know even joy in service. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.